And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele! Well, all right now. Now we are talking another great introduction by our friend Larry Babb and another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. My name is David Steele and we are back with part two of our talk with the late great hot rod legend Tommy Sparks. Now, I first want to thank every one of you who tune into this series. Uh, the feedback that we've received from the folks who've heard our part one with Tom Sparks uh, has just been off the charts, uh, far more than we ever expected for what we sometimes think of as a like a niche bit of subject matter. But um, you guys are really coming through and reminding us that this kind of stuff does have an audience and a listenership and the history that we're trying to share is not falling on deaf or non-existent ears. And uh, this makes us very happy. So keep on tuning in and we'll keep on bringing you various looks behind the curtain of this world of hot rod history that, uh, that we love so much. Now, uh, also as a part of a uh, preemptive apology slash explanation, um, I need to fill in a little gap that may may make some of you curious when you hear the top of this episode. Uh, these audio recordings of Tom Sparks were never intended for broadcast of any kind. And in, in, in fact, uh, the very concept of a podcast uh, wasn't even a thing back when I sat down with Tom for these talks. So uh, because of that, I was simply going for the documenting of one man's life and accomplishments. And as long as I could make out everything, you know, enough to be able to transcribe it, uh, to me, the task had been completed. So with that in mind, here comes the apology. Um, there's about a half hour of audio that exists of Tom telling a truly great story of deciding completely on a whim that he and his friend would hop in Tom's Aviate Roadster and drive to Indianapolis to see the 500 race. Now, this took place in 1946. And as Tom explains on this recording, uh, there was a rumor floating around that the greatest spectacle in motor racing might be on its last leg and that 46 could possibly be the last running. And this was due in part to the fact that the track had become overgrown uh, during the time that it, it uh, you know, languished while the war was raging on. They didn't have any races during those years. And the expense of getting it ready for another running of the race was was more than could be carried by those involved. So because this race was everything in the world to young hot rodders of that era, uh, Tom and his friend included, 
if this was to be the last running, they were not going to miss it. Uh, so off they went in Tom's 29 Roadster, carrying a spare clutch and the necessary tools to change it, which they did using a tree limb in a farmer's front yard in Kansas while on their way there. Uh, yeah, apparently Tom's Roadster had an oil leak that would saturate the clutch disc. And this was, uh, you know, something he'd been meaning to fix, but uh, never got around to. And, you know, hey, he didn't know he'd be driving to Indiana and back. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, the story is great. And it involves Tom and his friends sneaking into the track and seeing the garages and some of their hero drivers of the day and very nearly getting killed when they lost a front wheel bearing at high speed uh, while on their way home. And uh, yes, it's all great stuff, except for the recording. <laughs> and although you can make out the words that Tom's saying, he had a ceiling fan on during the interview uh, that was fine for us, but not so good for the mic that was picking up Tom's voice. In fact, it, it makes it nearly inaudible. And you can't imagine how I felt the day after that interview when I went to listen back and it basically sounded like Tom whispering in a room that had a helicopter landing in it. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I was not happy about this, but again, I can hear it enough that the stories come through, but that doesn't mean it could ever be made for broadcast. So as you'll hear, even the cleaner recordings from these sessions are, are kind of noisy and are at times kind of right on the line. But, um, you know, I think this stuff is important enough that it should be shared as any historical document should, but, uh, only if you can actually hear it. So um, I'm sorry that we can't give you that that great little piece of gold, those 30 minutes of the Indianapolis story. Um, but he does mention it at the very top of this part two. Uh, so I just wanted to explain that. Uh, so with that said, let's pick up where we last left off somewhat and listen in on part two of our series with my old pal and one of our greatest hot rod pioneers, the legendary Tommy Sparks. So you, you get back from the Indy 500. What are you doing? What are you doing with your life at this point? You still have Doc Ira stuff going on? No, I think before I went to work for Doc Ira, I went for, work for Packard Agency in Hollywood, W.H. Collins. First of all, I went to, well, even before that, I worked for a guy named Russell Johnson, a paint shop on Western Avenue, right where the, the freeway was built that took that shop out, but that's where it was. And, uh, I worked there and uh, sanding cars. When I went to work for Myers, I thought I was making a lot of money. I, I was making uh, less than $60 a week. Looking five and a half day a week. When I worked for Doc, I didn't make hardly anything or whatever. He'd throw me, I guess. When we go on race, uh, wherever we go on racing, he'd pay for the 
the room and the board and the food and such. But the, it sounds like the Packard agency yeah. made you, uh, it sounds to me like that made you want to work in a shop. Well, yeah. And yeah. work with cars. Yeah, yeah. I've been a painter all my life since then, you know. At the uh, Packard agency in the electrical department, him and his brother opened a repair shop in Pasadena. I worked there for just a short while, like three months to four months. Now are you starting to race midgets by this time? Yeah. So you've got stuff going on with Doc Ira? Doc Ira, yeah. While you're doing this stuff at these? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, I think I was still working for Doc Ira when I married Laura because she had to work in the department store. You know, to make to make the rent over the world. So what was what was the next step then? The next step I think after I was with Mrs. for probably four years, but I was only driving for like three years. And uh, So is this forty six, seven and eight? Like that? Probably that, because I was married in 48, and I was driving then. It was hard because all the, there's a bunch of good drivers out here then, you know, there must, I don't know, must have been 20 big name drivers. I was strictly a, a B driver, you know, running the, main, running the semi, rarely did I make a main event. Only trophy dash I ever won. They didn't get a trophy for. <laughs> Were you really running the circuit hard though? Were you racing almost every night? Uh, for sure, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We leave here at uh, Friday morning. Go over the old, go over the ridge route, which was nothing like it is today. To Bakersfield. It's actually in a little town, suburb of Bakersfield called Oildale. And uh, we run there on Friday night and get a motel just outside of Bakersfield away. And Saturday we drive up to, to Tulare, which is maybe 80, between 80 and 100 miles north of Bakersfield, and run there. And then after you know, after each race we go and have all the the major guys would have a place where they go eat. So there's a lot of good memories of all of those places. And, and the drivers and and then Sunday morning we would drive up to Fresno and clean up the car and do whatever repairs was necessary on it. So that, those three nights were for sure. Um, Monday, sometimes we came home Sunday night, you know, get home at four o'clock in the morning. Sometimes we just leave there Monday morning. 
for Monday, I don't think I ever race. And Tuesday, I have a race. Orange, the Orange Bowl, which is in San Bernardino. Or something I don't really remember what night it was. It, we usually run there. Wednesday night, San Diego, Balboa Stadium. Thursday night was Gilmore, and I try and you know get in with some guy where I just be one of his pit crew because of the, see, there were two circuits: red circuit and blue circuit. And the red circuit guy gets to forge the Furbies and that kind of stuff. Had their own racetracks uh, the office. The office had, uh, if you belong to the URA, you could run, a Ford could run in the blue circuit, but you'd never make the program. You Unless know? you were Roger Ward and Vic Edelbrock. Vic Edelbrock and Bobby Meeks. <laughs> um, because there weren't that many cars in an event. There's uh, 12 in a main event and 12 in the semi-main. And occasionally they would have what they call a hooligan race, which was like six laps with six cars. Yeah, I ended up in a bunch of those. So why, why would they call it a hooligan race? Because you, didn't, you weren't, your qualifying was not fast enough to make the main event or the semi-main event. Oh, okay. And so this was the leftovers. This is the leftovers. Yeah. The blue circuit is all just almost all office. I can't think of anything else. And uh, they had their purses were bigger than ours. They made more money. The drivers usually got forty percent of the winnings. So you drive a Ford. I mean, if you weren't come in the top three in the main event, you didn't hardly make expenses, you know? Hmm. But if we come in fifth in a semi, the, you know, the check would be like $20. Hmm. And the owner gets 60% and the driver gets 40. Hmm. Well, anyway, it's San Bernardino is where I knew I knew Bud Meyer because of hot rods and and the race equipment. And the same as with Edelbrock. Edelbrock picked me out of a car. We had a, a one of the few wrecks I was in at San Diego. And I was conscious, but just barely. And the cars were still coming around. And got out there and stopped cars and got me out of the car. And, Vic Edelbrock did. Yeah. Uh, did the car flip? No. I've never, never. I've had him flip over me. And he's sideways. I was never really injured. In a mission. I cut my mouth open one time. And I had some type of head injury. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, a car went over the top of the midget. Some part of the car hit me in the head. And you just had a little, what do they call those helmets? Well, they were Cromwell, they were English helmets. They were just basically 
leather around here and then a leather strap to come down. Hmm. Not much, no, no protection really. You know. And that's when Bud Meyer approached me and said, you know, you ain't making any money here and you ain't, you've been doing it long enough that you're not doing good, you know, good enough to where you should be. It was Bud that came to you with this? <coughs> it wasn't yeah. Eddie? No. And this was at the same race that Vic... No, it didn't the race. No, this is in San Bernardino. Okay. And uh, so he says, why not? He says, I know you, you think you're a mechanic, but you're really not, and you're not a, a good driver at all. Well, why don't you come to work for us? And, you know, we'll really make a mechanic. So I was married, and he was right, and, you know, finally dawned on me that what he said was correct, so that's when I went out to the shop and he hired me. <laughs> Best thing I ever did. I worked there for probably two and a half years, maybe three. Who was working there when you started working there? Phil Remington. And uh, who else was there? Frank Brewer, who was a midget driver. I'd be Bud and myself, and the old man, he never did anything except chase parts, I guess. There's a gal in the office, full time. And this Bob Bowen that they were talking about today, and myself, and one other guy. That's, that's what was there. Ray Brown. Brown left right after I got there. And Ray opened his shop. When you left, if you quit Myers to go to work for somebody, I mean, that was the end of you. They had nothing, nothing to do with you. What was the first thing they had you doing at Myers when you first went to work there? What was your first job? Taking engines apart. And then. Shortly, they checked me out on the boring bar and the boring engines hmm. and put them together. And, uh, they did the relieving. They had a great machinist there named Reese Dutton. Reese Dutton? Right. He's an old-time race driver. He drove. He drove for a pretty famous team. Anyway, he was the machinist and. He would set the blocks up in the mill and actually mill the relief in. That's a good way of doing it because you can control everything better than doing it by hand. And he run the, the piston grinder. Not the only machine work I ever did there was boring. But a lot of engine assembly. Was it, did they do general business stuff as well or was it all performance, high performance oriented? All performance oriented. You know, it might be a, a new car, a new Ford or something, but um, yeah, they weren't doing valve jobs on Chevrolet's or anything like that. See, that sounds like a, a, a great job, because you're around customer stuff that's, it's all about hopping it up. It's all about... Yeah, but... Eddie was just a tough, tough guy to work for. Mm. Just goddamn. 
that's where I got my why I was so tough to work for, I guess. I mean, he wouldn't, absolutely nothing. It just, he worked from 8 to 12, and 12.30 till 5. And you didn't come in 10 minutes late or anything like that. And uh, first thing he ever, I remember him saying, you don't make mistakes here. You don't make mistakes, period, or you're out of here. You don't get phone calls. Uh, you don't have anybody coming, any of your friends coming over to visit you, or any anything like that. And that's the way it was. Tough guy to work for. But then, Bud got, Bud wasn't in that tough. And Bud was the guy doing all the work. The old man, you know, ran the office. And, and oversaw things. If I ever had a mentor, it was Bud Meyer. If you ever had a mentor, you say? Yeah. Well, you met him out there, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yep. Seemed like a real nice guy. Yeah. So yeah. people would people would bring brand new Fords in and say, "Do Pull the engine. Give it the job. Yeah. Did they? Did you guys have a camshaft of choice? Cause, or did you grind your own or no, regrind them? Went Winfield. Put Winfields in. Yeah. Winfield semi or if it was needed more performance, an R1 or a Super. Basically, just for you know, guys to drive around town in their hopped up engines. It was a Winfield R1. Now I, I know I've heard you say that you. Didn't you drill the cylinder heads, the holes for the cylinder heads? Was yeah. One of your jobs. Yeah, in one of the uh, hot rod magazines that shows me to working on a drill press with a fixture of the cylinder head on drilling the stud holes. One of the first hot rods, maybe 50 or 51, maybe 52. And the guy next to me doing the same thing was Frank Brewer, who was a well-known midget driver. So as soon as you went to work for Meyer, that was it with the midgets? As far as driving, no, I drove for maybe a few races after that. But they didn't like it. I could see, I mean, the guys I run against are all just absolute super, superstars, you know, everybody from Rex Mays to Parsons, any of the names you can think of, you know, they're all great drivers. Wouldn't they have been in the in the blue group? Wouldn't they have been on the blue circuit? They both. They would run both. Yeah. So Vukovic and all those these yeah. are. Yeah, Vukovic. He became best known in the red circuit, but he certainly did great in the blue circuit too. So how long were you at Myers? Sounds like you were there a couple of years or yeah, three. Yeah, probably, probably two to three years. And when I quit, I thought, you know, that was the end. I, no one, they'd never speak to me again. And, uh, and that was about it for many years. And Bud and I had a mutual friend, a guy named Homer Farnaman. And uh, Bud eased up. 
a bit. I don't think the old man ever did. You know, they say, you know, you come here and work and learn all how to do everything, but then doesn't even go out on your own. Mm. I said, well, I said, that's, I guess that's life. And, uh, because all, everybody that works for him did the same thing. Well, for another two, three, four years, then leave. Uh, and, Pink, and Pink worked for him, hmm. and did that, and uh, it's three or four really well-known guys, other than that did that, and you know, it pissed them off. But you can't blame them. But by the time you left, you were probably building, building and running in complete engines and probably doing everything by that time. Yeah, because right? then I, I left anyone right to work for Ray Brown. He thought they were going over there. Well, all right, folks. Now we are talking. How fantastic is that? Tommy Sparks and that concludes our part two of our series of talks with Tom. We hope you'll join us next time for part three, where we're going to talk to Tom about his years with Sparks and Bonnie, the building of that, that business and that speed shop and the cars that were built in that space and raced around Southern California, the uh, sports car special, the roadsters and coupes, and of course the willies drag coop um so thank you again please come back for part three special thanks today and always to our announcer larry babb and all of our staff here at speed shop sound studios in north hollywood as always our pr person angela helton social media management coming to you from crystal hayes with technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan. Our theme song, as always, brought to you by me. And special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, always doing the heavy lifting, always keeping us on track. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian. Without their generosity and passion for preserving the history of hot rodding, none of this would be possible. If you'd like to learn more about the foundation, please check us out on our website, ahrf.com, where you can support us by checking out our cool new merchandise, uh, sign up and receive updates on all things going on with the foundation, as well as learning when new episodes of the Rodcast will be heading your way. And just generally keeping up on our our quest to preserve any and all things having to do with the history of hot rodding. Uh, we can also be found on Instagram and Twitter, and we have what I think is a seriously rockin' Facebook page, so please check that out. And once again, thank you to the great Tommy Sparks for sharing his incredible stories and his time with us. Uh, we thank you for tuning in, and until next time, Keep it wheels down, heading straight, and we'll see you here for the next episode of The Rodcast.
Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.